We're going to be looking this morning at John chapter 3. So if you want to go there in your Bibles, you're free to. If not, it'll be on the wall behind me. Um, I tend to use kind of a different version of the Bible than a lot of people do. And so, uh, you know, it may be easier to read on the wall, which is fine. I use the New American Standard Version. But we're talking about this thing called Scripture over the last couple of weeks. And uh, this morning we want to learn how to read and remember. And this is kind of an unorthodox week at Parker Ford Church because what we want to do is kind of walk through a how-to lesson on how to read the Bible, okay? So, uh, you know, this is a little bit like the classroom came to the, the auditorium, and I think it's no accident that Tim scheduled that for the week when he was in Iowa, you know? He didn't want to do this, and so we've got the whiteboard out this morning, and Maddie's going to help me with a few things, but we're going to walk through how to read the Bible, and we're actually going to walk through this passage of Scripture, John chapter 3, and use it as kind of an example, um, taking it apart and, and kind of understanding how to read the Bible. Now, Here's the thing. When I was a kid, I grew up in church, and the Bible, the, 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 the people at my church, my Sunday school teachers and all of the people who tried to educate me, if you will, they talked about the Bible in two different ways. One, they talked about it like it was food, like you could eat it, like something inside you would change. And you, if you were here last week, you heard Tim talk a little bit about that. And on the other hand, they talked about it like it was a sword, okay? How many of you heard that? We actually had these things called sword drills. I'll explain that later, but, but, but it's kind of weird, bread and sword. Ah, that's not really what you think of when you think of a book that took almost 1,500 years to be written and is thousands or at least hundreds, depending on your version of the Bible, of pages long. Okay? So this morning I want to talk about this. Now, the thing is, when I was in like second or third grade, I started to uh, be told, and I think I even got kind of browbeaten, into reading the Bible. In fact, if you really want to be a Christian, if you really want to know God, they said, read the Bible. And I thought, okay, as a third grader, this makes a lot of sense. I'll pick it up. So I, I got a, one of the Bibles that my parents had laying around, and I read it. And I read through Genesis 1, and it's the whole God created the heavens and the earth. Well, that's pretty cool, you know. He said, let there be light, and there was light. I mean, that was pretty neat. And you get to Genesis 2, and he creates these two people, and then those two people blow it, and then they do, blow it so spectacularly that and a, a snake talks to him. That appealed to my imagination as a little kid. I remember the snake talking I remember thinking, I had a pet garter snake at one point, and it never talked to me, you know. So I had these kind of imaginings, and I could kind of put myself in the story. And then, you know, by the time it got to the first murder, this is like one of those movies that my parents wouldn't let me watch. And I thought this thing called the Bible, that's, it was pretty, pretty cool, you know. It was fairly entertaining. But then I read Genesis chapter 5. How many of you this week read Genesis chapter 5? Nobody, okay. How many of you know what's in Genesis chapter 5? There are, these, there are these things called the begats, okay? So-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so. If you ever have read the Bible, you've come to these sections, and they're like a desert, you know? You're just kind of like, okay, they call this spiritual food, spiritual bread, and, and, and this is supposed to feed me that so-and-so had a kid when he was 472 years old, and that kid's name was such-and-such that I can't pronounce, and then he lived 387 years, and he had another kid, you know? And it goes on and on and on. And, you know, I was reading, but the thought of remembering, you see Maddie put those up there for us this morning, those, those gray words, remembering. I didn't remember the last name I read, 10 seconds previous, you know. It just kind of, that stuff drifted into my head and it drifted out. How many of you have read the Bible and felt that way? 
honestly. I mean, just gone, what in the world does this have to do with me, you know? It's not spiritual food if it doesn't in some way impact our lives, right? It's not spiritual food if we forget it the minute we read it. So how do we read the Bible and get some meaning out of it? And how do we read it so that it actually is food for us? The other, re- the other way that... Uh, that they told me to read the Bible is that it's a sword. And, you know, swords are there to protect us, right? I mean, today we have guns and swords are kind of outdated. But back in the ancient days, it's, you know, it, it really spoke to a kid's imagination to, to think that we were supposed to think of this Bible as a sword. So somebody walked up to you and said, well, Jesus is truly not God. Okay, and then you were able to like get out the sword, and you were able to attack them with this thing called the Bible, and you know it was supposed to defend your faith for you. Well, by the time I was 17, 18 years of age, the, I had more friends who didn't know Jesus than ones who did, and I didn't really want to attack them with anything, let alone a thousand-page book. You know what I'm saying? So that that whole sword thing, it didn't really appeal to me. This morning, we want to take apart this passage, and from the perspective of how do we understand the Bible, how do we take apart a part of the Bible and use it for ourselves? That's one of the things we really want to want to value as a church. Now, here's the deal. Some of you probably come in and are saying, listen, this book called the Bible is just too long. Just too long. How many of you have just kind of thought, don't raise your hands, you, don't, you won't anyway, but how many of you thought, this thing is just, why didn't God write like a, a Cliff Notes version, you know? In fact, if you go to the bookstores, you find the Bible for Dummies books. They're, they're out there. You can get those, and somebody has written a Cliff Notes version. But this thing called the Bible is long. It took 1,500 years to be written. But let me tell you why I think it's not that long, okay? The newest piece of legislation in our Congress, National Federal Congress, the newest piece of legislation having to do with environmental concerns, how long do you think it is? One law, one. 1,000 pages. One law, and you can read for 1,000 pages before you come to the end of that one law. How many of you think our congressmen and senators really read those things? I, I, I kind of doubt it. You know, the, the, the Obamacare health plan, you know how many pages that thing was when it went through Congress? 700 pages. And they wrote it in a few weeks. A few weeks. The Bible's starting to feel shorter, isn't it? At least for me this week when I was thinking about this, was the, the, the personal conduct, uh, I'm trying to think what they called it, the personal conduct brochure for the Internal Revenue Service. If you work for the Internal Revenue Service, the rules that you have to live by, how many pages do you think that document is? 300 pages. That's not the tax code. That's the code for the people who keep you straight for doing the tax code, for paying the taxes. So the Bible is looking short. I don't know if this really helps you to read the Bible, but I thought those were fascinating statistics and worth noting, you know? So the Bible is kind of long, but there's longer things out there. We'll put it that way. We're going to take apart John chapter 3, and we're going to ask three questions this morning, and we're going to go through three stages in this message, and I'm going to put them up there for you. Uh, The first one is that we're going to ask. As we go through this passage, we are going to ask questions. Now, I believe that when you read the Bible, for most of us, we're reading somebody else's mail. This book is not written to us. It's not written with Josh Bitework in mind. It's written to people who lived almost 2,000 years ago. And so there are things they understood that the writer is going to talk about that I don't understand. And so I just got to write those on a note card and say, okay, how do I come to understand the answers to these questions? And so in order to do that, we're going to actually ask a few questions. Then we're going to go through a second phase. We're going to find the answers. We're actually going to 
look at some sources and go, okay, how do we find answers in the Bible? And how do we come to understand this thing called the scriptures? And then third, because it's a spiritual book and it's supposed to be spiritual food, as Tim told us last week, we're going to imagine. We're just going to stop and we're going to ask God to help us use our imaginations and understand what this piece of scripture means for you and means for me because it's not just going to stay on the page. Hopefully it's going to jump off or you're going to get inside it or something and we're going to see how it affects us, okay? So we're going to walk through those three things. Start reading in verse 1 of chapter 3, John chapter 3. It says here, Now there was a man of the Pharisees. Now, if you're reading this for the first time, to me, that's a question. Wouldn't you agree? What's a Pharisee? Who is a Pharisee? That's a strange word. There are no Pharisees walking around today. Now, if you've been in church for a long time, you might know what this word means. Don't blow it, okay? You know, don't, like, tell the person next to you, I know. So the the, the first question we've got to ask is, what is a Pharisee? What is a Pharisee? The second question we've got to ask is the next line. It says, a ruler of the Jews. How many people know who was ruling the known world during the time of Jesus? There are these people called the Romans who ruled the Jews. They ruled everybody during the time of Jesus. What would a ruler of the Jews look like if they were foreign occupied by these other people called the Romans? So we have to ask ourselves, What is a ruler? Who is this guy who's a ruler? What does it mean that he's a ruler? So we're going to write that as question number two. Now, this this passage is 21 verses long, and we're only through verse one, and I have two questions. I'm going to limit it to five questions. We're not going to go all morning, okay? Some of you want to go home for lunch, and I've got to get on the road and go to Michigan, so we won't ask more than five questions. That's my promise. But a couple of them right off the bat. Then it says, this man came to Jesus by night. Okay, immediately, don't you want to know? Why nighttime? Why do people do things at night? We've got to ask ourselves in this passage, why night? Why does Nicodemus come to Jesus, this Pharisee, this ruler? Why nighttime? So question number three. Now we're going to read for a while before we come to another question, and we'll get off the ground a little bit. So the man came to him by night and said to Jesus, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. I have to stop right there. How many of you have lived long enough to remember when Jimmy Carter was president? You know, the first service, everybody raised their hand. And this one, only some of you are raising your hand. But Jimmy Carter became the president in 1976, and he used this phrase about himself. He said, I'm born again. And from that moment on, our country has kind of been, had a perspective shift on what this word means. This is the first time the Bible actually uses it. This term, born again, it's not something that's very normal. So we've got to ask ourselves, what does it mean to be born again? And you may think that you know what that means, But you may not. You may be surprised by the end of this at what it actually means according to what we find out this morning. What does it mean to be born again? All right, and then we'll continue reading. Nicodemus said to him, I'm sorry, Jesus answered and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Now, if you thought that question wasn't that big a deal, Notice how Nicodemus thinks of it. I mean, can a man who's alive for a while actually be reborn? 
It's just creepy to think about. Don't let your imagination go away to you. Nicodemus' question of Jesus is really quite literal. What is the matter with you, Jesus? You're talking about somebody being born again. That's sick. Okay. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, be born, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? Well, Jesus answered and said, Are you the teacher of Israel, and you don't understand these things? Truly I say to you, we speak that which we know, and bear witness of, what, of that which we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how shall you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And no one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, even the Son of Man. Now listen to this. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Now even for those of you who have been in church for a while, even those of you who have read a good portion of the scripture, that one might make you think. The serpent in the wilderness, and somebody named Moses. And maybe you remember Moses, but a serpent. So we've got to ask ourselves, Jesus is talking about a serpent. In fact, he's comparing himself to a serpent. What is the serpent? And we'll go talk about that in a minute. That's the last question, but I'm actually going to read the rest of the passage, and then we'll kind of come back to this stuff and ask, ask what it means. That whoever believes may in him have eternal life. For, now, now, remember sporting events. When I was a kid, there was always this guy who had like this clown-colored, multicolored hair. Do you remember that guy? Basketball, NBA games especially. And he always held up a sign. What was on the sign? John 3.16, right? John 3.16, most famous passage in the Bible, most famous verse in the Bible. You find it right here in the middle of this conversation between Nicodemus and Jesus. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Now we have to talk about this from a different angle because again, we're reading somebody else's mail. My, my grandmother passed away this past week. And so the emails back and forth between Michigan, where I used to live, and here in Pottstown, there's just all the time emails over and over. And now if you got on my email, I wouldn't be real worried about it, but you wouldn't know what in the world I'm talking about, you know? Somebody named Uncle Jim needs to come in from someplace called Tokyo, you know? And you'd be going, who's Uncle Jim and why in the world does he live in Tokyo? It doesn't make any sense, right? This passage is written to somebody else. And some of the questions that we've written on the board are questions that we're asking because it wasn't written to us. So we need to kind of go, how do we understand and what, how can we come to an understanding of what these words mean? So first off, what is a Pharisee? Now, last year, our church invested in these things called commentaries. And we have this whole big set in the library, right? You know, when you walk in the front doors of our church, there's this little room to the right. It's kind of glassed in. In there, there's this whole set of books. I tell you this because what I'm about to read from the screen, I got out of our library. That means this isn't my book. This isn't something that belongs to me. This is something that belongs to us. And anybody can look at these books anytime they want. 
You can check these out of the library. You can read them, and you can use them to understand the Bible. So Maddie's going to put up on the screen that in, I think it's uh, the ninth volume. Okay, these, these are really long, longer than the Bible itself. But in the ninth volume, you can look up John chapter 3, and it's going to tell us a little bit about this guy named Nicodemus, and it's going to answer what it means that he was a Pharisee. It says, Nicodemus was introduced as a man of the upper class, conservative in his beliefs, and definitely interested in Jesus' teaching. As a Pharisee, he belonged to the strict religious sect of Judaism in contrast to the Sadducees who were less rigid in their beliefs and were more politically minded. In other words, in Jesus' day, there was this heavily right-wing group to live according to these rules. And if you were in, you were in. And if you weren't, well, you were one of those guys. How many of you have kind of come across some people like this? It's a right-wing sort of rule-following group of people called Pharisees. Now, on the other hand, there's this other group called Sadducees who tended to be left-leaning. And and this this passage is letting us know that this guy Nicodemus is actually one of those right-wing rule-follower guys. He was one of the guys who, at least in their minds, they thought, we get it. And that means that probably if you were talking with him, you felt like you didn't get it. Okay? Make sense? That's from this thing, this book in the library. Now, it, we're going to read along, and it, the next sentence is, a member of the ruling counselor Sanhedrin. Now, stop there. What does it mean that this guy was a ruler? What does it mean that's a ruler according to that? It means that he's a member of a ruling council in Jerusalem that's called the Sanhedrin. Now, I had to look that up, and, and I, I went one step further, and this isn't on the screen, but you can actually find this stuff. You know what's a great source? Wikipedia. Now, anybody in this room can use Wikipedia, right? You ever had a question about the Bible and looked it up online? Wikipedia has great stuff. So I find out this week that the Sanhedrin has 71 members. There's 71 Jews. Out of all the Jews in the world, they congregate in Jerusalem once in a while, and they talk over all things Jewish. And those things, those people are members of the Sanhedrin. There's only 71 of them. A group of them are these Pharisees that this passage is telling about. And the other group in this group, in the Sanhedrin, is the Sadducees. And together they make up this ruling council. So what do we know about Nicodemus if we understand that he is a ruler? We understand that he is one of only 71 people in the world who are part of this club. He is part of a very, very small minority of people in the world. Now now we're starting to understand this passage, right? Some of you are going, wow, this is a lot of work. I didn't come to Sunday school this morning. Well, it's one week, you know? We're, We're taking this apart. Next week it won't be like this, we promise. But the idea behind this is that we're coming to an understanding of what the passage means. So we've actually answered questions one and question two. Now we have to get to question number three. Why did he come at night? Now for this, I looked, up, looked it up online. I could have looked in these commentaries, but I wanted you to know that you have access to this stuff. So Maddie's going to put up on the wall, there it is, Crosswalk. In fact, flip it back one. Crosswalk.com. Anybody can look up this website, look under Bible study tools, and they have more commentaries than our library does. So I looked under these guys. There's three of them. They're all dead. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown. They passed away years ago. But they wrote something on John chapter 3, and Maddie's going to show that to us now. It says in this little piece of information online, one of those superficial believers, Nicodemus was one of those superficial believers mentioned in John 2:23 and 24, yet inwardly craving further satisfaction, Nicodemus comes to Jesus in quest of it, but comes by night. He avows his conviction that Jesus was come from God, an expression never applied to a merely human messenger, and probably meaning more here, but only as a teacher. And in his miracles, he sees a proof merely that God is with Jesus. 
Thus, now listen to this line. It's a lot of words, but listen to this line. Thus, while unable to repress his convictions, he is afraid of committing himself too far. He's afraid of committing himself. Why did he come to Jesus at night? He didn't want anybody to see him. He didn't want anybody to see him. How many of you have felt this way about your faith? You like faith. It's an internal thing. How many of you have a relationship with God that you're like, okay, it's good, it happens in here, but I don't want it out there, okay? Some of you don't want to admit this this morning. So I've decided on, on, a, on a learning exercise. You're all going to do it, okay? You're, you just raise your hand and say, we will do this. Whatever you say, Josh, we will do. Can you say that? Eric, you're the only one saying it. And, and the rest of you, that proves that the rest of you are probably smarter than Eric because it's crazy. I've got this Bible, okay, and it is monstrous. I mean, I've got a Bible. If Bibles say how holy you are, I'm holier than anybody here, okay? This thing, they don't really say that, but this thing is like this big, okay? And I'm going to give it to each one of you. You get to take it, and you each get to do this thing. You get to take it to the High Street McDonald's, okay? And you've got to do it this afternoon when it's really busy or another time when it's really busy. And you get to carry that thing. You can't put it in a book bag. You can't carry it in a trash bag. You can't give it to your kid to carry. You actually have to go up to the counter and order a Happy Meal handling this huge Bible. What, what do people look like when you have a Bible like that? The, the, what's that? Be close to your phone. They look at you like you're weird, Right? They look at you like you're weird. Why does Nicodemus come at night? Because he doesn't want anybody else to notice him. We, we like to hide. We're like this guy a little bit. Nicodemus comes at night because he doesn't want the people who understand that he's a ruler, he's a member of this exclusive group called the Sanhedrin, who understand that he's a Pharisee, this right-wing group who didn't like new teachers like Jesus. He didn't want anybody else going, look at me, look at Nicodemus. I'm this guy who needs answers, and so I'm going to Jesus. That would blow his reputation. He might get kicked off the Sanhedrin. He might have his life completely messed up by this one moment. And so he comes at night in the darkness, hoping that nobody knows that he's ever talked with Jesus, okay? So now the answer finding, the things that we're finding that answer these questions, hopefully it's, it's dawning upon you that this is actually really important. So when Jesus says, born again, we have to talk about that now. Now the thing is, across the Bible, there's no re- frame of reference for it. And we could look at a commentary, but I actually want to look at how Jesus explains this. In John chapter 3, verse 6, just a little bit later on after this verse, remember that's in verse 3, John 3, 6 says, That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. What Jesus is telling us is that to be born again is to be born into an alternative reality, an alternate reality, if you will, okay? So each one of you has been born, right? Anybody here who's not been born? Ty's not been born. Jen, was he born? He was, he was born. Every person gets born, right? But spiritually, we don't all necessarily get born. We all walk in a physical world. We're all able to touch this chair and know that we touched it. We all have flesh and bones and tendons and ligaments. We have brains and hearts and organs. We have these things that say we were born of a woman. But, ne- but we don't necessarily have this thing that says we're born spiritually. And Jesus says, you've got to start over, man. You've got to start from the very beginning. The stuff in your life, it's all out. It's all, none of it's in. The inside of you, now that part of you, is not alive. 
that part of you needs to be reborn. And it sounds strange to Nicodemus, and it sounds, if we're thinking of it right, sounds strange to us. What, is, what does Jesus mean? It means to be born of the Spirit, because you've already been born of a woman. Be born spiritually. He goes on to talk later on in John chapter 15 about this. I'm going to read it for you. It says, When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear, bear witness. The Spirit will bear witness of me, and you will bear witness also because you have been with me from the very beginning. In other words, if we're born of the Spirit, we're connected to this thing called the Holy Spirit. And Jesus predicts this before it actually happens, but each person in this room, if we walk with God, has the ability to experience a spiritual reality, not just a physical one. That's question number four. What does it mean to be born again? It means to walk according to the Spirit. It means to have an experience with God's Spirit. And that means the internal part of us has come alive after it's been dead. The last question maybe is the craziest. Question number five. Now, I personally like this. The Old Testament is a favorite of mine. Most people, as you know, read the Old Testament and go, that is so old. I mean, the New Testament's really old. It's 2,000 years old. But the Old Testament, some of it is 3,400 years old. Now, that is even older than old, right? But the Old Testament makes sense of the New. And if you don't understand the Old Testament, then you don't understand what these people were thinking about when they were reading what John was writing. So what is the serpent? Maddie's going to put up on the screen Numbers uh, chapter 21. And up there it says this, And Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on the standard, and it came about that if a serpent bit a man, when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. Jesus is referencing this story in the Old Testament. Now, this is a weird story, so you have to listen to it. We're not going to read all of Numbers chapter 21. But Jesus talks about it, so you've got to understand it. Here it is. These people blow it with God. And they don't know they blow it with God. They just blow it in the ordinary ways that probably any one of us does. But in order to get their attention, God allows these snakes to come into their camp. They're all living in tents at the time. And these snakes come in. This sounds strange, but it's really in there. You can read it later. The snakes come into the, the tents, and what happens? They bite these people. And the Bible says that once they're bitten, the, these wounds, they burn, and they're hurting, and people are starting to die. So Moses, the leader, asked God, God, save us. These snakes are killing us, God. You've got to do something about this. And God says, okay, so that you can know that I'm powerful, I'm going to do something. He says, make a serpent out of bronze and hang it on a stick. Now, now does a bronze serpent have any power? Right? I got a statue in my house. You probably have a couple statues in yours of this, that, or the other thing. My parents have this bust of David, the Michelangelo David. and The only power that thing has is if you pick it up and you hit somebody with it, it really hurts. But, but th there's no power to this snake. Now, but, but God says, hold it up in front of the people. And he says, anybody who gets bit by a snake and sees that snake and looks at it and believes in God enough to look at it and has their heart in the right place enough that they trust him and look, they'll be healed. And lo and behold, it actually works. All these people who have been bitten by snakes, they don't die, they live. But then there's a few people. Guess what? They, they, they say, I don't want to believe God. I, I just, I'm not going to look at that snake. I've been bit by a snake, and I'm going to take my chances. I'm going to just you know, let, it, let it run its due course, and I'll probably make it just as well. And guess what? Those people die. And Jesus references this story and he says, literally, listen, the Son of Man, Jesus Christ himself, is going to be lifted up like the serpent. Like that bronze serpent in the Old Testament, Jesus is going to be lifted up. When does that happen? Remember this story? There's this cross and Jesus is nailed to it and they put it up like a telephone pole. They sink it into the ground and there he hangs. 
It's the most important moment in the history of the world. And Jesus predicts it, telling about this Old Testament passage. Just kind of letting us know that what is, what, how do we understand the Bible? Well, we have to go back and understand the Old Testament, which is what these people understood. We have to go back and read the history, read the stuff about it. Now, for some of you, you're going, I didn't want to show up at church and get a history lesson. But this is what it takes to understand what God is trying to tell us. Now, for the last part, part of this message, just for the last few minutes, we've talked about asking and we've found the answers. We've asked and we've found so far. But now we've got to imagine, okay? How many of you felt like going to High Street with the Bible? Are you all excited about this huge Bible and you get to hang out and, and, and be a spectacle in the middle of Pottstown? No, right? You know, I'm a pastor and I can't avoid periodically having a Bible, you know. I, I, when people ask me what I do, I try not to say I'm a pastor. That's really true. I, I want to have a normal conversation. When I first bought my house, I, I, uh, I, I bought this house and um, somebody, in fact, it was one of our elders, came in and told everybody in the neighborhood that I was a pastor. And so we moved in and the next week I saw people hiding beer on their hips, walking past. They're like, they lived on this side of us and they wanted to go talk over here and they're hiding a beer as they walk past your house. I was like, are we in third grade? You know what I'm saying? But people are afraid of pastors. I try to avoid this thing. We really often maybe sometimes for good reason, but oftentimes because we're ashamed. We want to hide. Many of us don't put all of our commitment in Christ, right? We often are kind of like people who have one foot in. We're going to Michigan, my family and I today, because of this funeral, and my kids are convinced we're going to swim in Lake Michigan. They love to swim in Lake Michigan. It's a huge body of water. It's very fresh and nice and great. And, and they think it's going to be, but it's about 48 degrees. That's a bit of an issue. Now, the thing is, if you don't commit to swimming in Lake Michigan, you can kind of get in first your toes, then your feet, then your ankles, then your knees. And if it's 48 degrees, my guess is you'll never make it past your knees, right? But there's this pier, and you can fully commit. You can start running on the land end of that thing and jog to the end of it and just take a flying leap. And when you're over the water and looking down, you realize at that moment, that is commitment, right? Why does Nicodemus come at night? It's because he's ashamed. It's because he's scared. It's because his reputation is on the line and it might cost him. And if he does the right thing, if he admits that he's in need of God and that he's not really experiencing God, that he's just realizing life through this right wing of experience of his, he's rule following that rather than being involved in a relationship with God. There's nothing supernatural. Jesus is healing people and he's sitting over there counting beans in a theological society. He's saying, listen, I need more, but he's not willing to say it all the way. He's not willing to go all the way. Now, that's a story that makes sense to me. Because there are days when I don't want to be known for who I am. There are days when I just would rather be treated like the rest of the world. There are days when I just don't want to be somebody who, who walks around with the Bible. I was recently walking in. It was to visit Bobby Garger, who just passed away. And this lady came up to me, and she looked at me in the eye, and she saw me, and then she looked down. And she looked right here, and she saw the Bible, and she said, You're a pastor. I said, yeah, yes, I am. And she says, can we talk? And I said, okay. For the next 35 minutes, I was listening to this lady's life story. It actually turned out to be great, and we've developed kind of a relationship. And she's a person who is very much in probably need of talking to somebody about her spiritual life. But nevertheless, sometimes this is not necessarily fun. We have to walk. We have to walk what we talk. And Nicodemus doesn't want to do it. 
So this idea of being a Pharisee, it actually has value for us today because we might not want to do exactly the same thing that Nicodemus doesn't want to do. We might want to sneak in at night. What does it mean to be born again? You know, when I read this passage, I've had this preconceived notion coming to this. When I was a kid, when people said they were born again, what they meant is that you get into heaven. Okay? Being born again means you get into heaven. Now, I don't understand why it would mean that. Nothing in this passage actually immediately says that. Now, I think it's probably got some truth to it, but actually, it doesn't just immediately say that. You get born again, and so you immediately go to heaven. No, that's not the case. Shelby met this neighbor of ours, somebody who uh, we'd never met before just a few weeks ago, and, and she told this guy what church she goes to, and, they, and, and the guy said, so does that church believe in being born again? And Shelby was almost like, well, yeah, kind of, uh, what do you mean, you know? Because this passage actually means something much more than what we usually mean by it. What it means is that we're supposed to spiritually be born again. You know, frankly, I think each one of us wakes up in the morning and we have a tendency to live natural lives. What do we think about? We think about whether we're paying the bills. We think about what time we've got to get our kids to school. We think about what time we've got to get to, to our job. We think about whether our wife's really going to love us when our hair gets all the way back to the back part of our neck instead of just right here. We think about this sort of stuff. And it's, it's very physical. It's very normal stuff. What we're not asking ourselves is, how does God want to change the world through us? What we're not thinking about is what it would mean to be spiritually born again. What we're not thinking about is if we were living according to the Spirit as, a, uh, as opposed to the rest of ourselves, just the stuff that says we need to eat, we need to drink, we need to sleep. If we were living according to the Spirit, we would be seeing a very different reality. I need every day to wake up to this story. Every day I face the challenge of Nicodemus, the one that Jesus puts in front of him and says, listen, you need to understand that God has a bigger plan for your life. What you're experiencing is fairly small. It's a bunch of rules. It's nothing more. It's just a religion. You can go to church and you can pay your tithe and you can do this, that, and the other thing, live by the rules all you want, but it won't change who you are. Nothing about this experience, Nicodemus, is going to shift unless you decide to commit all the way and be born again and be transformed by God's power. You have to have the Holy Spirit working on your life. If you're just working on it, it's not going to do much at all. Well, now that imaginatively changes Josh. Now that makes this passage make sense to me. And I realize that you could almost take this term Nicodemus out of this story and you could just insert Josh. I'm a religious leader. I'm a person who's religious. Some days I fall into the rule-following thing where I'm just walking it out according to the plan. There's this last deal. And Jesus says that someday he's going to be lifted up like a serpent in the wilderness. Like Moses lifted up this serpent that resulted in healing for all these people. He says, I'm going to be lifted up. And you know, in truth, that happened. Jesus got pounded onto a cross and then they dug a hole and they slid that cross down into it, jolting him as he was hanging there. And everybody from then to that time till now has the opportunity to look at that cross and go, either that's the moment that's the most important moment in the world or it's not that big a deal. Either we can look at it and go, wow, that moment changes us. We can accept God's forgiveness or we can walk away from it and act like it wasn't anything special. 
And Jesus says, listen, for the human race to get healed, for the human race to experience eternal life, for the human race to experience life with God on a spiritual level, they're going to have to look at me like those people in the Old Testament looked at the snake. They're going to have to look at me and realize that God wants to do more with their life. He wants to forgive, to cleanse, to transform, and to redeem and make us into people who are worthwhile, people who can actually change the world. Now that's a story worth telling. Being born again means more. At the very end of this passage, if you just look at it, I'm going to read for you the last three verses. And you'll notice, in fact, you can even stick your hand out. Do this. you got a hand, right? Stick your hand out. And when the word light appears, just stick up a finger, okay? So whenever, whenever the word light appears in these three verses, notice it. Now, 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 just think about this. Where is the story taking place? In Jerusalem at night. And there's a guy in this story who doesn't want to be seen. You ever gotten busted by the cops when you're someplace you shouldn't be at night? The first thing they do is turn on the spotlight, right? They look right at you. You know, you know what I mean? And you can't even see if the cop is male, female. He could be African-American, but you can't see them. All you see is a bright light, and you're like, okay, here's my license and registration, you know? Now, just think about Nicodemus, who doesn't want to be seen, known, observed, watched, nothing, okay? He's in the dark. He wants to be in the dark. Now listen to this. Stick your hands up. Go back to the light thing. And this is the judgment that the light is come into the world. And men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. What do you think that means? Five times the word light appears in the end of this story. Nicodemus wanted to be in the dark. And Jesus is saying, listen, if you get born again, if you accept the forgiveness that God is offering you, listen, you don't need to want to walk in the dark. You can let it all just kind of go. Because God's going to heal, forgive, cleanse, take it away. And then you're going to be able to sit in front of people and you're going to say, yeah, I did that. And you're going to know you were forgiven. And you don't have to hide it. You don't have to live this facade of living according to a reputation by what everybody else thinks. Now you're living according to an internal scorecard. I I read recently that Warren Buffett, you know, that great investor in Omaha, he says the most important advice he ever got in his life was from his dad. He said, live according to an internal scorecard, not the one that everybody else keeps for you. This passage is literally telling Nicodemus, you need to live according to God's plan for your life and the scorecard that you keep with him and not let all these other people who are looking at you, don't let them define you. Be defined by God's plan. We'd never get there if we didn't understand what a Pharisee was. We'd never get there unless we looked up what a ruler meant. We'd never get there unless we understood why Nicodemus is coming to Jesus at night. We'd never get there unless we investigated and thought more deeply about what it means to be born again. And we'd never get there unless we understood the Old Testament passage that Jesus is building this one on top of. Reading the Bible is not an altogether easy job, is it? You know, people say that it's just kind of pick it up and you get fed, right? And then you get to the begats in Genesis chapter 5, and like me, you give up. But this passage, when we take it apart, when we look at it, when we actually do some homework, when we, all, when we do all that, all of a sudden it points to the fact that God wants more with us, more with you, more with, the, more with me. He wants our spirits to be alive with his spirit. He wants the opportunity to bring us into the light when so much of our existence is hidden and shrouded in the darkness. Now that story makes sense to Josh, and I hope it makes sense to you. 
Join me in prayer. God, we are thankful. We're thankful for the fact that you put your word in front of us. And while it's challenging, Lord, you have this unbelievable ability to take what's going on in the scriptures and apply it to our daily lives and transform us. And we pray that that would be the case here. Lord, we need to look at you, and each one of us has the opportunity to either decide to look at you for our personal salvation, to look at you and realize that we have the opportunity to be transformed by the Spirit of God, or we have the opportunity to look away. And frankly, for most of us, For most of us, there are days when we don't want to look at the cross. There are days when we want to think that that moment is not altogether the biggest deal. There's moments when we think that it's more important to follow the rules, it's more important what other people think of us, it's more important all sorts of things than what you think of us, Lord God, and what we think of ourselves. We pray that you'd help us to live according to the light. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.